Welcome to Counter-Apologetics, I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the meager moral fruits argument. Does Christianity bear the kinds of moral fruit one might expect if it were true? Does naturalism or Christian theism better predict the moral fruits and lack thereof that we actually observe? No defender of the meager moral fruits argument takes it to decisively refute the truth of Christian theism since there is no logical incompatibility between meager moral fruits and the truth of Christianity. Rather, it's evidence against Christianity. It lowers the probability of Christianity. It's an evidential argument that's best utilized in a cumulative case. There's also a pragmatic or existential argument for meager moral fruits and a hortatory version of the argument, but we'll leave those to one side for now. The data that we're trying to explain, the meager moral fruits in question, are a little hard to pin down. As is often the case, the argument is really a family of arguments. So the specific meager moral fruits may shift from argument to argument, just as the specific form of evil shifts when discussing the various arguments from evil. A given meager moral fruits argument may focus on Christian history, Christian political activities, the fact that Christian practice is often an obstacle to pursuing the good for oneself and others, what you'd like to focus on is a matter of choice. So there are three moving parts of the meager moral fruits argument, so critiques of the argument will tend to fall into one of three categories. Criticism of the theological premise, the empirical premise, or the moral premise. The theological premise is, roughly speaking, the claim that Christianity should bear appreciable moral fruit. For example, Christianity should be an aid to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others, not an obstacle to the pursuit of the good. The empirical premise is meant to establish some relevant fact about the world. For example, Christianity has historically been an obstacle to LGBT equality. The moral premise will affirm a relevant moral fact or normative judgment. For example, LGBT equality would be a moral good. Putting those three together, one has a version of the meager moral fruits argument. We could switch out any of those three claims, substituting different versions of the theological premise, or focusing on different empirical claims or moral issues. My favorite version of the argument begins with the claim that, if true, Christianity should not be an obstacle to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others. It should be a help not a hindrance. The judgment of which it is, help or hindrance, will be person-dependent, based on the evidence they have available to them. It's inevitable that everyone listening to this, regardless of your religious persuasion, will have to make moral and empirical judgments based on your unique position on the grand epistemic landscape. And it's you, as an individual, who has to make the decision to be a part of Christianity or not. Not all versions of the meager moral fruits argument will follow the pattern of defending a theological, empirical, and moral premise. I think a theological and empirical premise are both essential to the meager moral fruits argument, but the moral premise isn't always there. For instance, one might defend a theological premise along the lines of, Christianity does not predict that Christians would be morally indistinguishable from non-Christians, and an empirical premise like, Christians and non-Christians are not appreciably different in their conduct and character. 
So every meager moral fruits argument will involve a theological and empirical claim, explicitly or implicitly. Pushback against the argument will typically involve a rejection of the theological, empirical, or if it has one, moral premise. The moral premise is, by my lights, where the most trouble is liable to occur. I think the theological claim, properly stated, is the least controversial. The empirical claim can cause difficulty as well, depending on what sort of empirical claim you're making. If you make a really grand empirical claim that's impossible to substantiate, then that's obviously going to cause problems, so just don't do that. But I think the biggest difficulty potentially lies with the moral premise. According to the Pew Research Center, views of transgender issues, unsurprisingly, divide along religious lines. There was and still is a similar divide over gay rights. Atheists are not just one of the most progressive demographics on trans issues. We are the most progressive demographic. So if you consider support for LGBT equality to be a moral good, then the meager moral fruits argument applies in full force. If you consider LGBT people to be in a state of terrible sin, then the comparative lack of religious support isn't a moral failing, exactly the opposite. If the parties involved have a disagreement over what is or isn't morally good, then running the meager moral fruits argument becomes impossible without resolving that disagreement first. Which means that many presentations of the meager moral fruits argument will end up mired in debates over ethical and political issues. So it really comes down to how confident are you in a given moral issue. Some moral values are really not controversial. Generosity, kindness, not punching babies in the face. But once you get to these more widely agreed-upon moral values, that's when the empirical premise really becomes difficult because how could you possibly show which demographics are kinder? We don't really collect data on baby punching. We have plenty of data on a range of social and moral issues, like the LGBT issue. There's no question that Christianity was an obstacle, and still is an obstacle, to LGBT equality. So the empirical premise is no problem there. But, you know, then you trip over the moral premise. Again, the empirical premise there is rock solid. So to whatever extent you're confident that LGBT equality would be a good thing, that's the confidence with which you can issue that version of the meager moral fruits argument. So different versions of the argument will suffer from different problems and have different advantages. As you can imagine, there's a lot more to say, but this is the short version of this episode. So let's move on to the theological premise. Is Christianity supposed to bear fruit? The idea here is that, well, if Christianity really is so life-changing, especially from the Catholic view, it talks about how sanctifying grace uh, is infused into our souls. Uh, we should see the fruits of this. Why is it that there's meager moral fruits that it seems to people that uh, Christians and non-Christians are kind of morally on a par. Not that Christians are bad people, but that they don't stand out from uh, regular from non-Christians. And they should, if grace is a real thing, if conversion is a real thing. So that and so that's what makes them skeptical of Christian religious claims. I could do a whole argue, you know, I could do a whole episode on meager moral fruits argument. Even those who who defend this argument, Paul Draper is one person, a, a non religious philosopher of religion who has defended this particular argument. And, you know, he his case is not so much like any single argument proves there is no God, 
but it's more like you, you add them all up, it tilts the seesaw, so it's more likely than not God does not exist. And this is a little jelly bean you put on there that tilts the seesaw towards atheism. That was Trent Horn affirming the theological premise, or rather, a version of the theological premise, namely that Christians should stand out from non-Christians. That's what we should expect to see, what we would predict, if Christianity were true. And the theological premise is pretty defensible. Its support is found in scripture, and tradition, and common sense. There's a clear basis for believing that the moral conduct of Christians and non-Christians should not be indistinguishable and that would be an example of a potential theological premise. That's pretty close to the one Trent Horn just described. Another candidate would be, theism should be an aid and not an obstacle to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others. Christianity should not impair your ability to live a moral life. We should expect it to have the opposite effect. So couple that with an empirical claim like, Christians have by and large been an obstacle to equality for the LGBT community, and a moral claim like equality for the LGBT community would be a moral good, and you've got an argument from meager moral fruits, incidentally one that has had a dramatic effect over millennials and Gen Z. The reason I lean on that one is just for the sake of ease. We have a solid empirical premise, an equally solid moral premise, and yet many Christians are still just proud to be wrong about this. Critics of this argument will sometimes resist the theological premise, somewhat desperately, and go so far as to deny that we should expect Christians to stand out from non-Christians. This expectation, however, is not something atheists are pulling out of thin air. This is what my Christian community expected of itself. In my Protestant environment, faith over works was the standard view, but Works, I was taught, arose naturally when one's heart had been truly given over to God. Failing to bear these fruits or continuing in a life of sin was a definite sign that the Spirit was not in control. The Holy Spirit was not really having an influence over your life. If you had sincerely given your life over to Christ, you would see a difference. Lack of moral and spiritual fruit was an ominous sign. The late Ravi Zacharias said that the question that haunted him the most throughout his ministry, was presented by a Hindu acquaintance. If this conversion you speak about is truly supernatural, then why is it not more evident in the lives of so many Christians that I know? In other words, a God who is said to transform should produce followers with transformed lives. Naturalism leads one to form different expectations. This, unfortunately, doesn't stop many from dismissively rejecting the argument because Christianity teaches that we're fallen creatures, depraved sinners in need of redemption. But there are limits. It would be quite bizarre for a Christian to maintain that the predictions of naturalism and the predictions of Christian theism are in perfect alignment on the issue of moral fruits. In order to reject the theological premise, one would have to maintain that Jesus offers no transformational power, the influence of the Spirit has zero tangible effect, and cutting oneself off from God, the foundation of goodness itself, has zero influence over moral conduct and character. So, is that what Christians ordinarily teach? Christianity is not endlessly flexible when accounting for meager moral fruits. Christianity doesn't predict that Christians would be perfect. No one is saying it does. 
But it definitely does not predict that Christians would be morally indistinguishable from non-Christians, let alone worse. Believers claim that the power of Jesus is transformative, that the Spirit yields different actions than the flesh. Some even claim that atheists cannot be moral. Well, if that's the case, then there ought to be pretty noticeable moral fruits. As Steve Bauman put it, this is one of the few testable claims that Christianity makes. If being a new creature in Christ means anything, it means being significantly different from us old creatures. End quote. We would never expect the moral fruits of theism to be meager at best, given the dramatic claims that apologists often make about the connection between Christianity and goodness itself. To be sure, some degree of moral failure and meager fruit is easily accounted for by the Christian worldview. I grant that quickly. But for doctrinal reasons, scriptural reasons, and to some extent common sense, Christianity is not limitlessly flexible in accounting for its meager moral fruits. If it was, it would make no strong predictions about the transformative power of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, and the connection between Christianity and the good itself. Christianity does make such claims, which is why the data of meager moral fruits are better predicted by naturalism. Christianity, of course, has resources for explaining its lack of fruit, but being able to explain some observation without logical contradiction, as theists are capable of doing, is not the same thing as making the respective probabilities equal. This point is worth repeating. Just explaining some observation without logical contradiction is not a very high bar. Clearing it certainly does not mean that our observations are equally probable on naturalism and on theism. Everyone involved can offer a coherent explanation of our observations, but that doesn't mean the evidence doesn't favor one hypothesis over another. I've heard some Christians insist on missing the point of the argument and remind us that even demons believe in God, which means we shouldn't expect belief in God to always bear fruit. But the argument isn't really about believing in God, full stop. It's about following God, following His commands, being in a personal relationship with God, being led by the Spirit and not just by the flesh, bearing the fruits that the Bible says you'll bear, being transformed by the power of Christ. This is about the expectations that Christians have of themselves, given their beliefs, and whether those expectations are panning out. So let's lay this out in a general abductive form, since we may want to factor the meager moral fruits argument into a cumulative case. For simplicity's sake, we should lump together the moral claim and empirical claim and label those the meager moral fruits in question. The conjunct of our empirical judgment and moral judgment is the data, the meager moral fruits that we're trying to explain. Premise 1, the probability of meager moral fruits on naturalism, whatever it is, let's call it N. Premise 2, the probability of meager moral fruits on Christian theism is less than that. It's less than N. 3. Therefore, the probability of meager moral fruits on naturalism 
is greater than the probability of meager moral fruits on Christian theism. Therefore, meager moral fruits constitute evidence favoring naturalism over theism. In English, premise one is just the probability that we would make some observation if naturalism were true. What would we expect to be true about the world if naturalists are right? And what would we expect to be true about the world if theism turns out to be true? So the exact likelihood of some fact may be hard to determine, but that doesn't matter. We can be much more confident of its value relative to a competing hypothesis. We don't need to assign exact numerical assessments as long as we can assign comparative values. So if the probability of a given observation on naturalism is n, the probability of that same observation on Christian theism is less than n. Therefore, our observation constitutes evidence against Christian theism. So why is it the case that the data we're trying to explain are more expected on naturalism and more surprising on Christian theism? It comes down to the theological premise, the question of whether Christianity is supposed to bear moral fruits. The theological premise is built into Christian theism, but obviously not into naturalism. On naturalism, we would expect religion, like all other man-made institutions, to be sometimes a help in the pursuit of the good, sometimes a hindrance. Many of those who have left the Christian faith have done so because Christianity was not enabling them to pursue the good for themselves or others. Of course, this is quite surprising on Christianity. I mean, are we really going to say that Christianity being an obstacle to pursuing the good is not in dramatic conflict with the self-image of Christianity? Naturalists, on the other hand, have good reason to expect a mixed bag. Like all other human institutions, we'd expect Christianity to be sometimes an aid, sometimes an obstacle to the pursuit of the good for oneself and for others. Since this is what we observe, we can take this fact to be evidence favoring naturalism over Christian theism. That's all I have for you today. I have two new patrons to thank. Brian Ozinga, or Ozinga, sorry Brian. It wouldn't be a proper outro segment if I wasn't mispronouncing people's names or accidentally misgendering them. And I would also like to thank Buzzkiller, coming in at $6.66 per episode. So thank you, Brian, and thank you, Buzzkiller. And of course, thank you to the Hall of Fame patrons. Grim Frenzy, I Embrace the Void, Now Philosophers in Space, My Brain is Hurting, Richard Crossan, Henry W. Bartholomew, and John Buck. Thank you to the new patrons, the Hall of Fame patrons, and to all the people who support the show and keep it going. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you might want to reconsider the whole they'll know we are Christians by our love thing, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.